AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for November 10th, 2015. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today, we're joined by Colin Connor. Welcome, Colin. You're a new member of the family here, coming from DirecTV. Tell us a little about yourself. Well, thanks, Brian. So I'm the um, lead um, for our security incident response and threat analytics team. So happy to be aboard the AT&T family and um, just looking to um, continue to build our synergies between our two teams. All right, very good. And certainly uh, glad to have you here. I guess you're here from Colorado, visiting New Jersey and uh, looking yeah. forward to some discussion here with you yeah. today. Yeah, and ironically that um, the weather was much warmer in Colorado <laughs> than it was in New Jersey. <laughs> well, welcome nevertheless. <laughs> we have uh, Manny Ortiz here, welcome Manny. Thank you. And uh, John Hogeboom. How you doing? <laughs> Welcome, John. <laughs> I'm Brian Ruxrode, and uh, let's go. Uh, and well, first of all, I wanted to just share with you a, a little bit of an update. Last week we had, I thought, a pretty good discussion with uh, Rick Huber about BGP hijacking, the notion of BGP hijacking. And uh, just by, I think, coincidence, there was a, what was considered a, rel a relatively significant I'll put it in quotes, hijacking event in India last week. Now, this is a, an event where a number of address blocks, I think a large number of address blocks, were advertised out of India inadvertently. I think right. it was a uh, basically a, a mistake that occurred. And so that's one of the things that I guess is, well, you know, does that really constitute a hijacking event or is it really just an, a, a, an accident of some sort? But it sort of exemplifies the situation that we were describing last week where uh, if somebody makes a mistake or they have malicious intent, they can start to advertise routes onto the network, which don't necessarily uh, send packets to the places they're supposed to go. Uh, nevertheless, this is a, one that was uh, published by BGPMon, BGPMon being one of the companies that provides uh, monitoring of a number of the uh, large network service providers for route information to uh, provide alerting services on events. And I think a lot of the events that they detect are actually, may actually be intentional activities. You know, one of the things we didn't talk about last week was the fact that large enterprises may be advertising uh, routes onto the internet. They may actually have multiple service providers. In fact, most large uh, enterprises do that. And they may shift traffic around from one ISP to another ISP as a part of their maintenance activities. They may need to do some maintenance on a router, and as Rick had described last week, we do the same thing within the network. And so that's uh, just part of what will show up as so-called events, BGP events, that make it even more difficult to determine which ones are actually malicious or accidental versus those that are actually intentional. So nevertheless, that was just uh, one of the things that was um, uh, interesting to uh, show up in the news uh, right after having that discussion. Yeah. And it's like BGP Anycast too, right? Which are like the content distribution networks advertise their routes in mass more than just like a multi-homed kind of thing, so. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, okay, so let's go to Manny here and I think we're gonna uh, jump onto the theme of ransomware. Uh, this has been a growing set of activities here, so uh, 
why don't you go ahead and tell <clears throat> us what you have here. Yeah, so so the, the, the story, that this one's a, a rather quick one, but uh, as you said, there's a, there's sort of a, a theme today, I think, of, of ransomware, so we'll, we'll hear about a little bit more about some other types of ransomware that have come up uh, recently. So this one, this, this particular one, has a little bit of a, a new twist to it. Most ransomware, as we know today, will encrypt the files and then mm -hmm. obviously ask for the ransom to to do the, de de the decryption of the files. Mm -hmm. So in this case, not only do your files get encrypted, but also the file names. So mm -hmm. in this case, you're also now, when you go to look at your files as before, you could look through your directory structure and think there's nothing wrong here. Now it's gonna be very apparent that there's something wrong because your, your file names are now encrypted. Mm -hmm. um, so now your files are obviously gonna show up with very weird names, so you lose sort of the structure of, the, of your files now. Um, you don't know which ones are the most important ones anymore either. Exactly, right? so if, if, there was some, if there was ones that you wanted to particularly go after, let's say to try to recover, mm -hmm. you wouldn't know at this point which ones to go after. So, um, so it's another, another sort of scheme to make it a little more enticing for folks to actually pay up the ransom right. um, to, to get their files uh, actually decrypted. Yep, the actual impact in that scenario, I mean, I could see that as being more of a psychological impact is, you know, I used to, I can at least see that there are files there, but now I can't even tell what's right. what. Exactly. Right, exactly. Right. Or, yep. or what, you know, as John mentioned, you know, which files did I have, you know? Did I have, um, were my pictures there, or were my important, you know, mm -hmm. presentations there? You know, I have to now remember what was there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so just, just to sort of, you know, stick the knife in a little bit further, um, they also decided to do a little bit of mocking as well with this one too. So um, they actually congratulate you on the message to becoming part of the, the crypto wall community and actually include a, a, ha a hashtag in the hopes that, that folks will actually go out and start sort of talking on social media about this, again, gaining some more momentum for folks that say, oh man, my files were encrypted, and, you know, and to entice folks to actually pay up and, and to get their files decrypted again. I, I think the, the whole thing with CryptoWall now is where are we at with CryptoWall in terms of version numbers? Mm -hmm. There's call, you know, they're saying this is 3.0, 4.0. I'm not sure exactly. You know, they're saying this this might be the 4.0 version of CryptoWall. I don't know where we're at with it, um, but obviously CryptoWall is has quite a significant impact in terms of how much money they say has has actually been brought in because of it. They're saying something like 325 million dollars in damages. So wow, that's significant in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. and it, you know, for that they should at least send you a little trophy <laughs> when you, when you uh, enter into the crypto That's wall right. community here. That's right. A hat, <clears throat> a coffee mug. <laughs> Got your coffee mug right? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so uh, Colin, I think uh, sort of extending on this theme here, um, is it Chimeran? Chimera. 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 Now, it, Chimera. Shame on me. Okay, yeah. so tell us about it. So Chimera, of course, comes from Greek mythology. Right. Ironically, the uh, malicious actors actually display the name Chimera trademarked on the, um, the ransomware screen. Um, this was um, published um, from um, a report by the Anti-Botnet Advisory Centre, uh, or Botfree, and it's been circulating for a few weeks and targeting specifically um, targeting companies in Germany. Um, it actually is all, the ransomware is all, um, the message is all in German. 
that the initial delivery is through email, mm. and specifically through job applications or business offers. Mm. So targeting specific types of people. The uh, ransomware, not much different than um, you know, other ransomware, you know, similar crypto wall, delivered via, this one actually is specifically a Dropbox link. So I think we see a lot of the, the crypto wall that may be you know, some random URL. This was specifically on drop, Dropbox mm. and infects the user, um, of course, encrypts local files and network shares. Um, mm -hmm. Ransomware is once again in Bitcoin, about actually $685 is the, what, um, is what's being reported as the um, equivalent in Bitcoins. And so the, the unique part of this, you know, besides the name, um, you know, if you're a malicious threat actor, you have to come up with a cool name for your malware, right? Um, but the unique part here is that it actually threatens to post documents, pictures, et cetera, on the internet. Um, so that um, the bot-free did not find any evidence of posting the files, but you know, this definitely is a change of, of methodology as well as scare tactics that Manning mm -hmm. was referring to. That, hey, we have your data and we're gonna post it and you know, your sensitive documents from a business corporation, you know, now I have to protect even more. Mm -hmm. Or you know, my pictures or whatever else may be sensitive to me is now out there and I'm gonna, you know, $685, I'm gonna pay that because it's worth it to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but of course we don't really recommend that. No, I mean, what you really should be doing is just trying to protect against these types of attacks, Correct. Uh, being prepared mm -hmm. or expecting this sort of thing. But, you know, uh, I think, um, you know, w one of the things that you had pointed out is they, they don't, there's no evidence that they're actually stealing the files mm -hmm. for posting purposes or other sorts of threats, but they are making that threat. And... Um, you know, that's one of the things that most most victims probably have no idea whether Correct. they actually have the files or not. Correct. And uh, so that's one of the, I guess, uh, the challenges here. You don't really know if it's been taken. You basically do know that somebody has hold of your computer and has some some level of control of it. Right. And if they can, you know, start um, mimicking what um, CryptoWall does by, you know, encrypting the file names, now mm -hmm. you don't even know what your file names of what could have been posted. So, I mean, the thoughts that you can run in your mind can be just crazy. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things you just sort of, uh, I think, kind of, I'll, I'll say, glossed over was the fact that they're using Dropbox. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that's, uh, Dropbox is a cloud service for being able to share files with, with, uh, with peers. And uh, I, I think it kind of points out just uh, one of these aspects of cloud services that perhaps is a, a little bit underappreciated. That is organizations, and this is true with uh, Facebook and Twitter and others, that they end up having to get into a position where they're, they're analyzing the data that's posted for malicious content so that their reputation of their service doesn't get eroded. Right. And uh, that's a very important aspect of this and the fact that, you know, hopefully that uh, once Dropbox was, you know, sort of got cognizance of this activity, was able to do something to, to deter that type of file sharing. Right. And Dropbox is definitely an important point on this as well, that you may, you know, it wouldn't be uncommon for users to exchange data via Dropbox. So mm -hmm. business offers, you know, you know, I click, I hover the link, it's the same. Okay, I'm gonna click on it. And in this case, actually, when you click on the link, it actually infects you. There's no additional execution. It automatically in, uh, infects um, and then encrypts the local system. Okay, now we were wondering a little bit earlier whether the, um, the threat to 
publish files was actually a feature they're advertising before it's available. You know, the marketing always comes out before the actual features. So right. we'll have to see if that uh, if that development comes along in, in the next version. Uh -huh. Testing the market <laughs> to see whether we're scared enough. Hey, if right. it's uh, if if just the threat's working <laughs> enough, that that uh, that may be enough for them. But yeah. one thing's we'll for sure, though, if if you had a choice of which ran ransomware to actually get, mine would be better. Yours would be yeah, better. It's cheaper. So. It's cheap. Yeah, it's, yeah. Cheaper. it's cheaper. Okay. Oh, you so can buy. Oh, yeah. the, to get the, <laughs> yeah, the keys. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah but we're not advocating. That. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, Manny, tell us about this uh, this third one here. So again, you know, sticking with the theme, right? Um, so this is an, another another uh, new wrinkle to the whole ransomware. So again, just like any other ransomware, um, this one seems to be Russian-based. Mm. The, the payment on this one is twenty thousand Russian ruble. Uh, I think I said that right. Was it, was yeah. it ruble? Don't yeah. ask me. All right. <laughs> but yeah, that's right. You're right. <laughs> um, it looks like. Um, in this particular case, this was a checkpoint actually doing a little bit of analysis on this, mm -hmm. on this latest sample. It looks like it's been around for about a year, so now that they've looked back and they've seen that it, it's been around for about that long. And like the other ransomware, this one also puts up a, a splash screen, replaces your wallpaper with a Russian message. When it's translated, uh, it says your files are encrypted. If you wish to retrieve them, send one encrypted file to the following mail, ad mail address. And they've obviously used a ton of different mail, uh, mail addresses that are actually mm. listed in the story. And you have one week to email me, after which the decryption will become impossible. Mm. And then again, the, the, the piece that becomes a little more you know, unusual about this one is that normally what we know is that with the encryption, the way that it happens is once you are infected, what happens is your box reaches out and mm -hmm. to, to retrieve the, the, the actual key, right? Mm -hmm. So it, that piece of it is missing here. Mm. So with that piece being missing, there's that now, that piece that you now cannot, it's, it's harder to stop this from happening. So right. before, mm -hmm. you were able to, if you understand where the command and control is, you could put a block in place. Mm -hmm. Now, that's, once you're infected, right. that's it. Your files are already encrypted. So. There's a, there's a file format, so it actually, it's quite unusual, again, that it actually encrypts your files. So once it encrypts the files, it uses this format that you can see there. It's a, you know, the, the email address is included in the, so it's changing every single file to include the email address, mm -hmm. uh, the, the internal version number, the, the, identify, the machine identifier, the date and time, and some random, you know, random digits. Mm -hmm. um, so it's completely, you know, so it's completely changed all your files over to this. Mm -hmm. um, so again, it's not, it's now not reaching out to, to get that key. Basically the way that it works is that it takes the, the first 30,000 bytes um, and it encrypts it using two buffers of, of random digits and letters and it takes the original byte and it randomly uh, performs a, a, a math operation mm -hmm. on them. So it takes the original byte and the, ra and the random piece of it. The remainder of that file, so if the file's over 30,000 bytes, if there's anything, if there's not, then obviously the second part doesn't, doesn't matter. But if, there, if, if the file is larger than 30,000 bytes, it takes the remainder and it's encrypted using a, uh, an RSA locally generated uh, public key and a matching local private key. 
And then basically the, the third part of this is, so, so you've got this encryption layer, and then on top of that, it takes, it takes all of that so far, and now it also adds another, it, the, the buffers and the private keys that it's already created, it takes and adds metadata to each file, and then encrypts, it, encrypts that using three hard-coded RSA private keys. Uh, RSA uh, 768 public keys, right. and then the matching RSA private keys are located on the attacker side. So, wow. so once so the attacker gets the... Essentially, they're encrypting it with a random key, yep. the file, on the machine locally. Yep. And then that metadata of those keys is encrypted with some static keys buried into each file. Exactly. Right. And then yeah. the, you would have to know the private static keys back up on the which, attacker which side the attacker to decode yep. the metadata that could uncode your file. Exactly. So yeah. it's like two layers of and, encryption. And what I'm hearing here is that besides the delivery of the malware, there's no additional um, infrastructure that's needed by the threat actor, by the malicious party. Right. That's correct. That um, you know, the, you know, all the encryption is happening locally, and they're just using email as a communication method as opposed to a website or yep. you know, whatever the case may be. Yep. So let's uh, let's take a quick. You know, actually, I, I feel pretty safe myself because I have an old computer. It would take it weeks to do this. <laughs> but nevertheless, I, I think some of us have more modern computers, and so let's take a little bit of a look at how we should be protecting ourselves. The first one, you know, obviously, you want to have a good backup of your data. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, consider the layers of security that you want to have just to prevent having getting the malware in the first place. Uh, I, I think, Colin, you, and a lot of these are basically sent through some email path. Yeah, and so you want to have a good email filtering mm -hmm. solution in place to be able to mm -hmm. hopefully not let those into the into your enterprise in the first place. Yeah. Uh, or you know, if you're using an email service as a consumer, same kind of thing. Make sure you're using a service where you're not getting a lot of garbage mail. That's, that's a pretty good indication. If you're getting a lot of garbage, in, garbage email, mm -hmm. then the bad stuff's more likely to leak through as well. Right. Yeah. Um, but then, as a user, just looking at your email, if it doesn't look right, mm -hmm. don't open it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Good user education. Yes. Yeah, good practices user education. Within your company, practices, right? and let people know what to look so, for. Um, and yeah. So, a reminder, you know, we've had Murray on the program here, our little mascot for associated with uh, our own internal awareness program. He can help with these kinds of things. I think there are a couple, of, a few samples of, of Murray's videos on the on the internet available for folks to take a look at. And then uh, next one would be, you want to make sure your antivirus is up to date on the computer itself. So if it doesn't get infected, hopefully the uh, antivirus solution is up to date on being able to, to protect against that. Right. Now, generally, the next layer, the fifth that uh, us as analysts tend to to look for, is that command and control activity. So uh, this is a case where that may not be available to us, so yep. right. we're going to need to look for other ways to be able to pick up on this type of activity. But yep. at least you have the first four layers that we described, mm -hmm. and um, not, not to mention the actually having a decent backup. So basically five layers of protection here. This really should not, we shouldn't have too many victims of this type of thing if we're protected well, yeah. or at least be able to recover from it. Yep. Right. Okay, so let's shift... Uh, Shift, shift topics gears. a little bit, shift Away gears, literally. Let's get into some gears. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the pedal to the metal and speeding tickets. Well, don't speed too fast because <laughs> you're, you're, you're being video recorded. Uh, so this is a story actually comes out from Electronic Frontier Foundation. They kind of report on this. They started investigating these systems. Actually, at Shodan, who we've talked about on the show before, is a kind mm -hmm. of... Um, 
a scanning, they're kind of a public scanning source. They go out there and scan the internet for different types of things mm -hmm. on different ports. And they started indexing these devices and they discovered that what these are, these are these automated license plate readers. So initially they thought, oh, these are just traffic cameras when they would log into, like, is there a public open to the internet? Mm -hmm. They would go check it out and say, oh, look, it's like a traffic camera, you can see things. But then they started to realize, wait a second, I'm seeing the license plate show up next to, as it's capturing people's cars and zipping by. So what these are, these are, um, you know, used by law enforcement. Uh, they deploy these around uh, cities or municipal areas and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Uh, and more often than not, they are configured, besides being open, they found a large population of these being open to the internet and mm -hmm. at large. Normally, their kind of default configuration is that they um, aren't just recording cars that are on maybe a hot list or something. They're recording every car that goes by in the license plate and they just store that off. And they might re record that for a year or more so that if a car ends up on a hot list at some point, they can go back and look in the history of where has this car been seen and what time mm -hmm. of the day in case they need to try to find it, you know right, what I mean? Right. Or the patterns that it might where follow. Where has the last one seen, right? So that's what the system does, is it you know stores that time and date information and whatnot. It's one of these, this is kind of just another story. We've talked about other maybe less interesting devices out on the internet that have been just people put them up there they don't realize that they're exposing mm -hmm. a web or a telnet port that's what these expose more often than not is a web and a telnet port mm -hmm. that you could log into with a default password mm -hmm. um, but um, it's just another one of those internet of things type devices that people aren't aware of uh, right. fortunately after being um, they did kind of discover that there are two large populations of these kind of clustered um, cluster in California and other cluster in Louisiana mm. uh, related to certain um, uh, organizations. They did contact them and they've since secured those. But there's probably a few others out there scattered around mm -hmm. uh, related to uh, having these deployed in various areas. So it's one of those things, when you put these kinds of devices out there, you really should understand what ports are exposed um, and whether they really need to be internet facing at all. Right, um, absolutely. It's, it's, I mean, the, the internet is a, is a convenient interconnection solution right so long as um, it's so long as the internet is uh, facilitating that but it, it probably would be good I mean if you're going to connect something to the internet you need to make sure that that device is prepared to be connected to the internet otherwise you really need some good network connect you know protection solutions around that right yeah, you need to assume that the barbarians are at the gate as soon as you put a device on the internet. Yeah. Assume that you're going to have a horde of bad guys trying to break into it. Mm -hmm. um, people who don't you know, expect that um, or even have the concept that that's the case uh, are fooling themselves because that's what happens day in and day out. You know, yeah. We see it all the time, the, yeah. the amount Absolutely. of scanning that goes on. So you mentioned Shodan at the beginning mm -hmm. and uh, it's just uh, it's sort of a mention that uh, FBI recently came out with a public information notice indicating that advanced attackers are using Shodan uh, that to, uh, to help identify vulnerable systems for exploit. Right. Now, um, wow, yeah. what a surprise. Uh, <laughs> right? Like, who wouldn't? It's a handy no, I think index. it's, uh, but it, it's, it's uh, sort of important, to put, and Shodan being one of the av available tools, but mm -hmm. certainly any service or system that's able to that's uh, you know collecting information about vulnerabilities or exposed systems mm -hmm. and posted uh, is going to uh, you know be facilitated by attackers I mean even ones that aren't necessarily publicly available Shodan has some publicly available capabilities 
they have an enterprise licensing model, so you can basically buy the uh, entire collection of data. There are some other services out there that have you know, free information based on their scanning activity. But even other ones that might not have public information, they are potentially subject to exploit, right? So that, uh, that information may not be available to us publicly, but to an attacker may, may in fact be. So I think it's, um, you know, it's important to consider that uh, as you, as you <laughs> pointed out, John, anything that's connected to the network, even if the attackers don't discover it right away, there may be others that will discover it and that information be made right, index, yeah. basically available yeah. so that the attackers don't really have to do reconnaissance. All they have to do is come in and do the attack. Right. Mm -hmm. Even websites, I mean, something as simple as having your website online, running a particular version of software gets indexed by Google. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of tricks you can use with Google to find right. certain vulnerable versions of software out there. Yeah. Uh, you know, barring Shodan and the advanced capabilities right. that it provides, there's a lot of simple things for finding just vulnerable mm -hmm. versions of yeah, Joomla certainly, or uh, WordPress yeah, or the, a lot of these the, other things. The web exploits that, right. uh, yeah. that, uh, that may exist. So that information basically gets indexed and makes it easier for uh, the attackers to find yeah. avenues in. And so you should use that yourself to assess your own Absolutely. vulnerabilities on your own networks. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You know, that might be uh, a worthwhile segment for us to do sometime in the future mm -hmm. to just show a few examples of how that, uh, that can be done. We'll have to do a little masking, I guess. Yeah, yeah probably. probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, Colin, let's go back to you here. And um, Keyforce, uh, tell us a little bit about that. So while it might, not, might sound like a superhero or an anime character, this is no joke. Um, so this was codes and uh, a corresponding binary that was released by security assessment at um, the ISIG conference in Auckland, New Zealand. Um, so this... You know, KeyFarce is a, a play on the name of KeyPass, so it steals credentials stored in KeyPass. Um, of course, KeyPass is a local password manager mm -hmm. um, designed to protect credentials um, locally um, on a system um, and allows you to have much more complex passwords, you know, passwords for specific websites. You know, you can just, you know, go wild with passwords. Mm -hmm. um, it also, KeyPass has, you know, process protection, process memory protection, so that um, applications can't steal the passwords that are in memory. Um, and of course, encrypts the, the data on, at rest. So this, um, this piece of code, this piece of software actually uses what's called DLL injection. So this is Windows based. And so it's injecting into the DLL some set of C-sharp commands um, to execute what's already built into the KeyForce, or mm. yeah, KeyPass um, database, so doing an export. Um, the key here is that while this is a research, um, this code you know, can be used and the method can be used across you know, not just KeyPass, but other key, um, key repository solutions. Um, but it has to have a, this, the computer has to actually be compromised, system has to be compromised. Right. You know, this has, somebody has to be on the box and put this code on there. And then, you know, with, with KeyPass, that it actually, um, so if you, don't, if you do not have the, the database open, it's encrypted, and you're not interacting with the, the application. So the application has to be running, the database has to be unlocked. Um, so, you know, this is, you know, definitely a different change to um, defense that, you know, a lot of times it's been key loggers in the past that have recorded this information. Now the threat actors are actually trying to get to your whole key store and trying mm -hmm. to really catch up with technology a little bit. Um, and, you know, my recommendation is we need to actually step back 
um, and technology and start going back to the past phrases, you know, remembering, you know, having phrases that we um, summarize into words and, you know, characters and then modify, you know, per websites so that, um, you know, you're going back to the human being the, the database repository, mm -hmm. the credential repository, as opposed to technology. Yeah. Well, I have a little bit of a different opinion, mm -hmm. and we talked about this a yes. little bit before. First of all, you know, if you really want to do this right, I think it's go hardware or go home. Mm -hmm. That's right. <laughs> I mean, you really have to have some piece of separation yeah. that separates the uh, the authentication method. I'm going to generalize it to authentication method. We mm -hmm. we're talking about passwords here, and mm -hmm. you know, fundamentally, passwords are flawed. I mean, they, they, they really need to kind of go away. Mm -hmm. The notion of two-factor authentication, you know, to have something you know, which but not be dependent on that, and to have some device. I, I love the, uh, the tokens. You know, a lot of the hardware tokens that are used mm -hmm. for two-factor authentication are kind of moving into software tools, mm -hmm. and I think they're the same kinds of hazards that they're going to be susceptible to here. That is, if you can, if you can see it on the screen, somebody can capture it. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think this is a case where we really need to think about trying to get some things into hardware a little bit better. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I think there have been a couple of attempts to do this on actually mobile devices. Right. That opportunity still exists to, mm -hmm. to do it much better mm -hmm. than has been done so far. And I think mm -hmm. there, the opportunity to really make it mainstream mm -hmm. may be coming. So. Right. And you know, definitely the key here is that um, the computer is compromised. So if you have your, you know, your, your secure, you know, your you know, two-factor authentication on the same system, mm -hmm. then you know, the, the chances of it being compromised as well are there. Right. And, and, yeah. and just as a side note, you know, I think uh, the tendency has been to think about like an SMS back channel, you know, message mm -hmm. as a form of two-factor authentication. Mm -hmm. it's, it is, but it isn't. I mean, right. th there are weaknesses associated with that. There's no guarantee that an S SMS message is going to a specific device. There are other ways of accessing SMS messages, and if that's been hacked, then you have a problem there. Um, you know, somebody's account may have been uh, un have unauthorized access to it or something along right. those lines. So, again, I think you really need to really do this right. I think we need to go hardware, mm -hmm. and um, you know, but in the meantime, certainly uh, mm -hmm. users, if they want to be protecting themselves against this type of attack, I think um, you know, using the, um, mm -hmm. the passphrase tricks and mm -hmm. uh, things that you can remember will be helpful. Yeah. Of course, you always have the notion of a you know, a sticky note in your wallet or something like that, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. On your keyboard. Yeah, nobody, nobody, nobody goes to your desk anymore, right? <laughs> Keep it in your wallet. <laughs> Keep it in your wallet. All right, thanks for bringing that. And John, let's go back to you. And um, so uh, I get confused about the anti ad. You're going to have to explain. Yeah, this, this one is the kind of weird one. So PageFair, I guess, is a company that kind of, um, so we've talked about advertisement networks. You go to right. our web page. And it displays maybe in the corner a side panel an advertisement for a company, and sometimes those are tailored to you because they have some tracking cookies and they figure out oh you're interested in these companies mm -hmm. and they'll present that or whatnot. Uh, so from my understanding, PageFair is a company that does a similar thing, but is really just tracking when those advertisements are blocked, maybe by a browser or whatnot, or some other intermediary mm -hmm. preventing you from preventing the users from seeing the ads. And it's something that if you're in the business of having your ads being presented to people on websites, you'd want to know whether you're being blocked or not. Right. That's really not the crux of the story here, though. The real crux of the story is that PageFair, which is very similar to an advertising network company, let's just leave it at that, 
for this context. Um, they were spearfished by an attacker with an email. And uh, from that, they were able to get a key access to a key email address that was used to register the account on their content distribution network that they use for mm. all of their advertising stuff that they manage. So the bad guy, they forced a password reset on the content distribution network so that they were able to get into the content distribution network where they host their content. They swapped out the JavaScript for the page fair, the legitimate page fair JavaScript, with their own malicious JavaScript. Mm. And what that did is deliver, you know, when someone went to one of these websites where PageFair is participating and it's presenting ads and whatnot or is in the loop there, they would get a little pop-up that says, hey, your Adobe Flash is out of date. You need to update it, which we've seen that before you mm -hmm. know, as a, a ruse. Ultimately, what happened is if the, the user was tricked into clicking it, they would get the NanoCore rat which I'm not familiar with NanoCore. I probably need to look up a little bit more on that one, but I guess some another one it's of those access remote access Trojans. That, you know, there's tons of them out there, um, but that's what this one was dropping on the user's machine. Right. Um, so uh, just another example of when you have a website and you might want to integrate advertisement networks and whatnot into it, that not all the content on your, you know, it can affect your reputation of your yeah. website when you integrate third-party content into your pages. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that's what happened, you know, here. So they had some reputational situation by the people who were, you know, PageFair was integrating right. with and whatnot. Right. So, uh, I, mean, if, I mean, if you take this right on the surface, it, the inclination is to trust no one. Right. Well, <laughs> yeah. but you know, you have to trust. You have to trust certain things, and so be be a little bit uh, controlled about what you what you do. I mean, it's it, it's just like roaming the streets, right? You know, the only protection I can think of here, as a you know, as an individual, is to just be deliberate about what you're doing, where you visit, and uh, have it be purpose specific. If you're just browsing around aimlessly, the likelihood of uh, you know, having problems show up are, are going to increase. The, yeah. I mean, the problem with with this, and it's it's quite apparent, is is the you that's good. You can obviously you know the sites that are you you think are legitimate sites. Mm -hmm. The sites that I visit, it's a place where I get my news and you know I get my email and stuff. The the problem is is like John said, it's you've got these third party content you know yeah. delivery you know and and so if if that site gets compromised. Like this, then you know, going to you know WallStreetJournal.com, if you're presented with the ad, you're still yeah, it's still a possibility. Right. But uh, yeah. what it, I guess what I was referring to is if you're if you're more direct and or limited in where you go, mm -hmm. uh, and certainly Wall Street Journal and mm -hmm. reputable organizations are going to be paying attention to mm -hmm. things sure. like this. If they yeah. start getting complaints, they're going to start doing something right. about it. And yeah. so I think that has a lot to do with it. The, right. the reputation point that you made earlier, right, John. Right. That is, this got detected. Mm -hmm. Reputation started to, to erode, and so they right. had to go. So it, that took was uh, perhaps yeah. helped the uh, discovery process and took action around. Yeah. That. And PageFair so themselves have they have a nice blog article describing why this will never happen again to them. They've added, instituted a lot of additional security, sort of additional and protection on mm -hmm. controls of the keys and email accounts that control these various relationships that mm -hmm. they have. And we've talked about this before with other types of things. You know, the SEA, Giga. Syrian Electronic Army, is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah. They had done similar types of tactics right. where they would get 
use the password reset process. Right, the password reset process on a hacked free. account in order to post something mm -hmm. as though they were that you know legitimate company. I can't remember what it was, but it was another yeah. news agency. I, I can't yeah. Remember well, I, th I think Brian Krebs had posted an article on this, or actually, I think it was in the addendum of his of his book, Spam Nation around the notion of, um, you know, pay very close attention to the access control to your email accounts because that is the path to password resets in yep. most cases. Your strength of your passwords on individual sites is only as good as basically the password reset process that's behind it. Mm -hmm. Most often it's, you know, you request a password reset off the site, mm -hmm. sends you an email, gives you the link, you go to the link, that's the trick. Yep. So, yep. I mean, if for the end user, once they go try to log in again, they might notice that they're, they can't figure out what their password is, right. but that's, right. <laughs> that's a little late at that point. Yeah, so I think um, on, on this, one of the things to remember is that even when you're prompted for a Java update or Adobe update, yeah. that you know, don't go by the, the pop-up. Go to the official sites Good point. With, yes. with Java or Adobe or whatever the case may be and download that, 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 that plug-in, that um, software. Mm-hmm. Yeah, make sure you're getting it from the legitimate site. Mm -hmm. Good point. Okay, let's take a look at the uh, internet weather for the last week or so here. You know, we talked a little bit about the um, Akamai report, State of the Internet report. They talked about uh, three new attack vectors that uh, they're ob observing. And uh, this is one of them that uh, is, uh, I mean, relatively new from my point of view. Wanted to share this with you on the uh, the activity and how it's progressing here. Starting around September 25th timeframe, we started to see some increases in uh, traffic on port 137 UDP. This is NetBIOS name server. It does appear to be reflective denial service attacks on this port, upwards on the, you know, sort of hundreds of megabits per second in some of these cases, very spiky in nature. But um, most of the, uh, the targets we see in these attacks are uh, basically consumer address targets. And uh, I would say that's indicative of uh, being used by booter services. And what I mean by that is, you know, these uh, commercial uh, denial service attacks services that you can basically pay them, they'll do the attack for you. You don't, you know, individually build the botnet to support that. Considering the frequency here is relatively low, I'm going to guess that basically one organization or one of the booter services has, uh, is using this, uh, this function at this point. Uh, but we can uh, probably anticipate there will be some increases in the not-too-distant future. But again, know what you're exposing to the Internet, because yep. this is not necessarily the booter service's no, fault. This is, uh, this is this people is Windows who have being devices, to, yeah, Windows yeah. machines that are exposed to the Internet. Without any Why uh, anybody in, in the world would have NetBIOS name service up to the Internet is beyond me, but there are enough of them out there that they can be used for reflection. That's right. Yeah. Next item here are the top 10 most probed ports. And, uh, well, port 23 TCP on the top here, that's Telnet, followed by port 22 TCP. That's moved up a few spots, followed by uh, ICMP 8, that's a um, ping request. I usually don't report on the ICMP things, partly because it is such a variety of activities here. This being an echo request, a lot of times what they're doing is probing around to see what systems will respond to a ping. And then uh, they may do some other port scanning on the device afterward. But that's moved up a little bit. I actually looked at the graph. It hasn't changed uh, significantly here. So I'm not exactly sure why that moved up. It may have been some other things moved down to, uh, to drive the, um, the, that moving up. Port 445 TCP followed by port 80 TCP, 443 TCP. So scanning for the, uh, the web interfaces. And the 445, by the way, again, 
Windows devices mm -hmm. yeah. exposed to the internet. Uh, you know, that's the uh, file sharing feature. If there aren't good passwords in the Windows machine exposed to the internet, it basically can give access to the file system. So. Anyway, the uh, next item here, 1900 UDP, that went down a few slots this week. We'll take a quick look at that and see what the profile looks like. Uh, followed by 21320 TCP. Actually, I don't, I don't know, know what that, that port is. is. I was going <laughs> to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I better go and look it up and we'll, uh, we'll post something here. Uh, followed by 1433 TCP. We're going to take a little closer look at that one. That moved up six slots and then followed by 3389. Uh, that's a remote desktop protocol. So looking at port 23 TCP, uh, this is uh, looking at 90 days of activity here. And as you can see, we had another surge of activity within the last week here, I guess since uh, about November 6th when that, uh, that bumped up again. So uh, what was that? That was uh, just over the weekend. You know, somebody was, uh, was chatting with somebody today. We're getting into the, uh, getting into the holiday period. And uh, this just kind of, you know, forgive the tangent here, but uh, we were talking about how we used to see a real big surge in activity around the holiday periods is, you know, the schools were out, you know, whether it be high schools or colleges, right. and college breaks, and so we'd see a surge in the, uh, in the hacking activity. And, um, you know, we were kind of looking for ways to get rid of that noise so that we could see the more advanced stuff mm -hmm. and be able to focus on those activities. It's kind of the other way around now. When the, when the breaks come, it doesn't really create that big of a surge because there's so much organized criminal activity that hides all the, you know, the, uh, I'll say hobbyists. So unfortunately, it's become more of a career activity than a, uh, than a hobby. Nevertheless, we do see a surge in the uh, telnet activity there. We're going to take a look at the uh, IP address profile in a little bit as well. In terms of scan probes on port 1900 UDP, uh, this is SSDP, mostly associated with reflective denial of service attacks, and we see a little bit of a drop off here. There's a possibility that uh, there's a shift between using 1900 UDP to perhaps some of these other vectors that are, um, I won't say up and coming, but perhaps uh, more effective than uh, 1900 is at this point because um, some folks have been putting some blocks into place. But nevertheless, um, what we are seeing is mostly uh, reflective denial service attack activity, and several of the addresses uh, look like they are potential targets. That is, you know, in this perspective, the sources of the scanning activity may in fact be uh, targets of attack. Looking at scan probes on port 1433 TCP, that's Microsoft SQL database, uh, what we see is that there's actually been a drop off in that activity. We had a relatively large surge around uh, between the end of August and into the, uh, uh, to the end of October here, kind of dropped off there. But uh, most of the probes here are actually from just three uh, Chinese sources that are remaining that we see on the, uh, on the activity list here. Looking at the most sources doing the probing, Port 23 really taking up a big piece of the pie here, about half of it. You know, they should really share. And uh, more notably, I think we had a big jump in port 8080 activity. Uh, it jumped up a number, a number of points here. But nevertheless, port 23 followed by 445 TCP. Uh, we see uh, 80 TCP that had jumped up a piece and uh, 8080 TCP had jumped up as well. So let's take a little clo closer look at port 23. As we reported last week, we're looking at the last 180 days of activity here, and we still see that sort of upward trend in terms of the number of sources that are doing probing on port 23. So um, again, looking for these devices that are connected to the internet, exposing telnet. Really shouldn't be using telnet, especially on the internet in any case, 
these days. Looking at these scan sources on port 80 TCP, that's HTTP, we see it's really spiky activity and uh, some significant jumps here in terms of the number of sources. Typically, we see maybe about 2,000 sources scanning on port 80. It jumped up to up around, well, we peaked out on the uh, 6th at about uh, 15 thousand sources uh, probing on that. And it's very diverse sources. They're, they were, they're kind of all over the map, I mean, geographically and in terms of the types. And uh, similarly, on port 8080 TCP, sort of an alternate port for web, again, very diverse sources. We see a higher proportion of the probes from China here, but a very similar profile, a peak of about 9,000 sources in one case here. Now, if we have the same sources that are probing on port 80 and port 8080, considering the profiles here, uh, there are some aspects of the algorithm that might, you know, port 80, 80 being a higher port, um, it might actually have the same numbers, but might uh, register slightly lower here. Uh, it's a matter of interpretation of whether it's actually scanning activity or not. So it's a figment of the, uh, basically, the algorithm. So with that, that's our show for today. We'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. And you can find AT&T Threat Track on the AT&T Tech Channel. It's on YouTube as well as on iTunes, uh, the iTunes obviously being a, uh, an audio version of it. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Security. And uh, I'd like to thank you, Colin. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Manny. Mm -hmm. Thank you, John. I'm Brian Rexroad. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.